Okay, so we're working our way through the Esther series. We're up to episode six now. We've been looking at um, homesickness. God has put eternity in our hearts, and we are looking beyond this world, but having a heart for this world. We looked at how in the story of Esther, the God's not mentioned at all. Was it that they forgot? No. They wanted us to think, what, how do you relate to a God that seems to be silent? We looked at the power of discipleship as a way to be able to partner with that God. We looked that God puts us through his, his gym, God's gym, that prepares us for the, the partnership and stretches us if we choose to embrace that. And then last time we looked at sightedness and positioning, how to, to spot what God's showing us, which might not necessarily be what's visible on the surface, and then how do we get aligned with what God's trying to do. Now, this week we're going to talk a little bit about beauty and pride. You can't get very far in the book of Esther without bumping into this, but this series is about learning how do we partner with God. And the songs that we were singing earlier, the, the different things that people shared, this is a God that is worth partnering with. And so we want to do any, any, everything in our power to make sure that we are free to partner with him. But addiction to pride and beauty is a real distraction from what God's called us to. And we're constantly making bad choices because we make them based on appearance and how they add to our profile or our pride. Because God works despite appearances. When we looked at uh, trusting God in the silence, there was nothing of the appearance that God was working And we can miss him if all we're focused on is the appearance. We also see working with God, if we want to work with him, we've got to recognise that he does what he does at a cost to his profile, not in order to build it. So, beauty. Very interesting uh, when we came to looking at this because, you know, I couldn't remember uh, that we'd ever really focused on this subject that I hadn't in, uh, in all the years. I couldn't remember ever speaking. I'm sure we've referred to it, and yet it's such a major thing, this whole issue of pride. And... The purpose of the Word of God is to help us in our development. And our development is about being having some things added to us and developed in us and other things that really we don't really need or want to be uh, removed from us. And that isn't always a comfortable experience, but it's a necessary experience that we actually become more like him, and as John the Baptist said, it's about my decrease and his increase, and that never changes. And so as we look at these things, you can look at, oh, there's another beating I'm getting, or you can say, thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness in that willingness to help me to 
see the areas in which I can be adjusted and developed. To be honest, in the light of what we were just declaring in, in song, and uh, I'm happily here. Uh, I don't know what's happening with the rest of you. Uh, I really care most of the time, but the sense of God's presence and the reality and truth of what we were declaring uh, was just, boy, it was just really hitting me that the enemy sought to throw everything he possibly could. It's like there's an anger, a demonic fury there to try and destroy Jesus. And like everything, all the torture, all the things, all the people turning against him, all the, the humiliation, all the things that he bore was to try, and it was enemy strategy to try and completely remove him from the scene, but remove him from the purpose. And thank God, he took it all. And what I can't get away from, he took it all for you, and he took it all for me, personally. And if I'd have been the only person ever to walk this earth, he still would have done it for me. That's a saviour that's worth following. Because it didn't end there. With all the fury, and in fact, probably the ultimate thing, as we full well know, was that moment when God had to turn his face away. Because when our sin when the sin of everybody was loaded upon him, that he might gain this great and amazing and unbelievable victory, God couldn't even look upon that. And so there was that, that separation at that time. But in the purpose of God, it didn't end there. Hey, praise God. Everything that the enemy tried to do came to nothing. And that glorious statement that was made when they went looking for him. He's not here, for he's risen. And he's risen for you, and he's risen for me. And we share in that victory, the most significant victory that has ever taken place or will ever take place in the history of mankind was when Jesus rose from the dead. Wow. Wow. Nothing that the enemy could throw at him Nothing that could be done against him could or would defer or deter him from his purpose. Because it was for us. Because he loved you and he loved me. And I can't comprehend it and I'm sure you can't. He decided that you were worth it. That just blows my mind. But boy, do I enjoy that victory. I'm not very English. I like winning. I'm not satisfied simply to have taken part. What a victory when he rose victorious having conquered sin and everything the enemy could do, conquered death. And we share in that. And that's what we celebrate. And when we come to look at the word of God, let's look at it in the light of the privilege that we've got. There is nothing... There is no illness, there is no sickness, there is no past, there is no problem that can possibly stand against the power of that type of victory. He conquered everything. He conquered every single strategy and enemy that the devil could 
pull up and pull against him. And we share in that. Guys, don't let us ever listen to the idea that something is too difficult and something is beyond him. It's not beyond him. Hmm? In Esther, we're looking at this. You know, a lot of stuff about beauty. And what we're looking at today is whether we're going to view something purely on the external or whether we're going to get to the real heart of the thing there. The king, you remember in the story, he's, he thinks he's got the most beautiful wife and maybe he has, but he wants to show her off because the focus was on beauty. Esther herself, I'm sure, was beautiful. Well, she had a, a thousand competitors for her beauty that had been personally selected throughout the whole uh, empire. Isn't it interesting that uh, to create this kind of external environment that you couldn't be sad um, in the palace? So if you were showing mourning, if you were in, or in sackcloth and ashes or anything like that, you couldn't even enter that area because nothing should disturb the external beauty that was there. Then you've got uh, Haman, who wanted people to see him uh, and to see his position uh, and to see, I mean, didn't care what was happening on the inside. Never stopped really to think about the horrendous attitude that was going on inside, providing it looked good on the outside. There are cultures which specialise in that. I'm not sure that ours is not one of them. But I always remember uh, when we first went to California, uh, somebody took us aside and they said, you know, uh, you might like to know the culture here. Don't matter about how you feel, it's how you look that counts. Hmm. Oh, that seems to have been exported. You see, the world in which we live, a man is often assessed on his uh, wealth or, or, or power. He's so rich, uh, he's so powerful, so influential. A woman is often assessed on her sexual beauty or physical attraction. External things. In fact, back in the Persian Empire, which you're talking about here, uh, women were valued for the shortness of their skirts and men for the fatness of their wallets. Thank goodness we don't live in a society like that anymore. Mm. We're not that far removed. But you know, there's a... <laughs> There's a built-in preference uh, for beauty. Just think about wonky fruit and vegetables. Yeah? Do you know that research in the University of Edinburgh discovered that 50 million tonnes of fruit and vegetable are discarded each year across Europe because they don't quite fit with the concept 
of beauty. See, there's a difference between looking at what's overground and what's underground. We don't ever want to get into this world's way of, of thinking and assessing. Uh, we, we have to recognise that we live in a world where there's great pressure to comply with the kind of culture, values and systems. Let's think about how somebody who's really, really wanting to follow God and they're looking to choose a partner, a life partner. Let's say that there are uh, ten perspective possibilities. Eight of them don't have the externals. So there's a hope that the two that do have some character and spiritual maturity will actually be okay. The world teaches us to make the decision on the wrong basis. In fact, the outcome of that can be devastating, limiting and tragic. See, part of living looking at the externals is a there can be a kind of quick split-second judgment that causes us to miss the true value. The king wants to show off Vashti because of her beauty and ends up with a bucket load of problems. How do I promote the things that God likes rather than the things that this world wants? How do I keep my focus on what he wants? Wasn't it interesting, you remember that story in the Bible when the prophet was sent to find somebody to be anointed, went to Jesse, the father of of, uh, David and a number of other sons, and had to be told by God, you're looking on the outward appearance. I don't look on the outward appearance. In fact, if we remember that even the father, I mean, it gets pretty grim, the father had forgotten about the youngest son out in the fields getting on with looking after the sheep and what have you. See, let's understand, if we are children of the living God, we are not restricted to looking on the outward appearance, to make an assessment on values which are to do with this world's culture and this world's system. We are equipped to be able to look at what God wants and pick up the true things. To look, even as the prophet was appointed to do, look on the heart, not on the external appearance. Now, in this time, as we're looking at these things, there's a very real sense of a, uh, an emphasis from God to be looking at what he wants, not just looking on the outward appearance. Not being taken up with external beauty and missing out the purpose of God. (laughs) 
And it's so, so easy to get caught up in viewing things the way that the world would teach us to, to view. Even when we're more spiritual people, we can still have these things um, influence us, even in the way that we draw attention to those that we love. What is it that we want people to look at? So the king wanted the people to look at his wife because she was beautiful, but do we do the same with our, our children? Oh, our, she's so beautiful, isn't she? Or look, look at the quality of his, his work. What are the things that we can end up putting the emphasis on which isn't always helpful? And what can we do about it? If, if we're saying this is already in us subconsciously, what, what chance do we have? In, there was a fantasy book written by uh, a guy called George MacDonald, and it was called The Princess and Curdie. And in this, this story, that, that um, this young man is sent to, on this quest, and he's told, you will constantly make bad choices if you do it based on what things look like. And so he's asked to put, him, put his hands in this magic fire, and as he's touched this magic fire, therefore whatever he touches afterwards, he will see the real beauty afterwards. So as he's asked to touch this really um, ugly kind of troll thing, and as he touches it, he realises it's an it's a innocent young girl. And so he's able to make good choices because he's able to see beyond the, beyond the natural. We don't have magic fire to put our hands in. Be fantastic if we did. So, what is our antidote to an, an addiction of appearance? Well, we have to look at what Jesus has done for us. And when we do that, we see that we get a new definition of beauty and a new experience of beauty. See, Jesus was glorious. He was um, bathed in the, the love of his father. He was in complete union. He was beautiful. But in Ephesians 5, we see that he gave it up in order to present us to himself radiant and without blemish. In the story, we see that Esther's loved because she's beautiful. But what we see Jesus doing for us is he's loving us despite our imperfections, despite our, our flaws, but that is actually what makes us beautiful. And so the, the new definition, the world focuses on appearance and therefore we become self-obsessed on appearance. But Christ's definition was that he had the ultimate beauty, he had the ultimate glory, beyond compare, and he gave it all up for us. And that's what the Bible teaches is real beauty. Because when he came to earth, he had no beauty that we should desire him, and on the cross he became cosmically ugly to the fact that his father had to turn his face from him. Self-sacrifice is what the Bible teaches us is the true beauty. So how do we get a new experience of this beauty? When, when uh, at a wedding, at a marriage ceremony, when the, the, the bride comes down the aisle, she looks incre incredible. No matter what she normally looks like on an average day, okay? With all that stuff coated on her, she looks completely transformed. So rude, so rude. But that's... The, Jesus and the Bible often refer to our marriage to Christ. And he uses that analogy because it's, we're so familiar with it. At that point of 
coming, up, uh, coming down the aisle in the wedding. We, we are the most beautiful we've, we would ever be. And that's what Jesus sees when he looks at us. No matter what we think we normally look like, despite all of our flaws, we are clothed in his righteousness and we are truly beautiful to him. He so cleansed our sin, he has so clothed us in his beauty that his heart bursts at the sight of us. He delights in us like the groom delights in his bride. The extent to which that is internalized for us, that belief, that is what makes us free from the world's definition of beauty. If we truly believe that we are beautiful to him, the hold of the world begins to let go. Now, often related to, to beauty, we, we actually see this concept of pride, but pride's actually a, a, a broader concept. And so we want to zoom down into this because you can't get through the story of Esther without bumping into the issue of pride as well. And we're going to zoom into Haman now um, and kind of do a bit of a character study in him and see how, what, what we can learn about pride from him. So, uh, Esther 3. So after these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha, doesn't matter, um, the Agite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down to pay him honour. When the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of just killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole of the kingdom of Xerxes. So we see already with Haman's character, he's been given the, the highest honour by the king. And do you remember we talked about before that the, law, uh, the, the king made it a law that everyone had to bow to him. Now, in a culture where you would naturally bow to those that are higher up in the, the social order than you, to be told that you have to bow indicates that he was a pretty nasty piece of work that people were forced to bow to him. And we see that Mordecai, having a level of integrity, refused to just go along with that. But it enraged him so much. Let's go on. Esther 5, 9 to 13. Haman went out that day. So this is after he's been at the, the first feasts that Esther's put on for him and the king. And he was high in spirits, so he's just been honoured above all people. It, it, it just keeps going higher and higher. So he's high as a kite. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman retained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted about all of his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honoured him, and how he'd been elevated above all the other nobles and officials. 
And that's not all, Haman said. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. Okay, so the height of his satisfaction. He's really big-headed. But all of this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. He couldn't get any more honour. He's regarded by everyone, but all of it does nothing for him. So that's another thing that we're going to talk about with pride. Then on to chapter 6. That night the king could not sleep. You remember all this? I'll summarise this a little bit. And he reads over the book, remembers that um, Mordecai saved his life, and he thought, what must I do for this guy? I need, I need an idea. I need an ideas man. Who have we got here? Ah, Haman's just arrived. Now, Haman's just arrived because he'd just been talking to his friends and family and thought, you know what, we've got to, I've got to take that guy out because he's stopping me really enjoying everything. So the king says, ah, Haman's here. He's an ideas person. Send him in. So verse... Six. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honour, let him bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head, Then let the the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let let them robe the man um, the king delights to honour and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Really building up his own celebration here. And then the tables suddenly turn. Go at once, the king commanded Haman, Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. Okay. His pride has put him in this situation. So, oh, let's just jump back to my PowerPoint, please. So there's three things that we're going to learn about the nature of pride. So, the character of pride, i.e. what it is, the deadliness of pride, what it does, and the cure for pride. So looking first at the character of pride, C.S. Lewis, a famous Christian author, put it like this, pride is the ruthless, unsmiling, sleepless concentration on self. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It's the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. 
Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. He goes on to say, if you were to meet a truly humble person, you'd never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling us they were a nobody, because a person who keeps saying that they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. That's a, a, a form of pride. It's what we call inverted pride. It's the, those of you familiar with the story of Dickens, it's the Uriah Heap. I'm ever so humble. Always reminds me of a guy at school. You know uh, kids at school tend to get nicknames. This poor guy, um, in fact, I remember him as Uri, as a shortened version of Uriah, because he came across to people in that way. Actually, I found him to be a very kind and good person, but the name sticks. (coughs) The thing we would remember from meeting a truly kingdom-humbled person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. You see, the essence of kingdom humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. So I'll give you that one again. Shall I give you that one again? Oh, all right. I was going to anyway, but I just check every so often, you know. The essence of kingdom humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. Got it? You've got that kind of inspired... The penny just dropped, look. Well, at least three of you have anyway. You see, there are many ways in which this this is focused. But if when I'm telling a story, or recounting something, somehow I need to put myself in it, then actually the focus again is, is, a, is a pride-based thing, trying to get me into it. I mean, I just used something ridiculous. You know about that bus that crashed? Well, you know, I rode that bus 25 years ago. That same route. It's irrelevant, but you have to get yourself into the story because it's thinking more of self than we should do. (coughs) Thankfully, the power of the gospel brings us to the ability to no longer have to be like that. Thinking not less of myself, but thinking of myself less. No need to connect things with me. It can't be so releasing so freeing I'm in this room with these people does that make me look good do I want to be here you see the true kingdom humility means I can stop connecting every experience and every conversation with myself 
In fact, I stopped thinking about myself, the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings, something that we picked up from something written by Tim Keller. See, it's an insidious thing. You might think you're proud of your looks, but when you're surrounded by someone with more, you lose pleasure in all your looks. It just doesn't work like that. Pride has no interest in the thing you are doing. It's all about you. Pride gets no pleasure from having something, but only having more of it than the next person. Lust might lead somebody to a man to sleep with a beautiful woman, but pride is about does it prove that he can. Pride has a superior and inferior version, but both comes to self-focus, self-absorption. Now, as we go through these things and talk about these things, I'm sure that we'd all say, yeah, we wouldn't want to be like that. We wouldn't, wouldn't want to be in, in that sort of situation, which is a better thing than trying to think of who you know that is like that, you know? There can be somebody that plays an instrument and they're the best in the town and then they go to some sort of major orchestra playing in the city and they no longer feel good about what they're doing because there's somebody that's doing it better. So humility is about not being driven by self. Now guys, we know the gospel is full of this. But we're talking about an application in the real world. It's about listening to people because we're interested in the person, not being concerned about how we come across. Humility has interest in the thing you're doing. It's just not about you. You know you've been with a humble person when you leave thinking, they were really interested in me. They were relaxed. And the screw tape letters says this. You can conceal the true nature of humility by thinking of it as belittling of talents. God wants to be a point where someone could be building the most beautiful cathedral and know it's to be the best and yet be no more pleased that he built it than if someone else had built it. So when I was growing up, I always thought the, um, the opposite to pride was to talk down about yourself. And um, you'd get it in the primary school when you'd done your artwork and say, oh, mine's terrible. But really what you want is someone to say, oh, no, no, it's really good, it's better than mine. And you're like, yeah, it is actually. But got to try and keep that down because we're British and we're, we're very humble. But what we're, what we're seeing is that that's not true humility because that's still self-obsession. So I, I was trying to think of a scenario. So imagine you've got someone that's trained to, a, to be a doctor and they're very proud of their position. Someone in the meeting starts choking. James, James over here is, is choking on something. So, Quick, we, we need a doctor. Is there a doctor in the room? Oh, 
I don't really want to be known as a doctor. It's, it's just, I've had lots of opportunities in my life. It's not something that, that, that's really that, that important. He's going blue. Is anyone a doctor? Can, can someone help? Well, I, I don't really like to refer to my, myself or those things. Who cares about you? This person is choking. Use the skills that you've got. Put them forward. And that's, that's one of the deadly aspects of what pride does. It means that we look down on the skills that God has given us, thinking that we've given them to ourselves. We touched on that last time when um, Mordecai said to, to Esther, who knows that you've, been, that you've come to the kingdom at such a time as this, but it's actually better translated, you've been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. You didn't do anything to get yourself here. You didn't make yourself beautiful. You didn't align all of the, the different things. God has done that. So let's not put pride in those things because that would actually lead to you not giving yourself fully for the things that God's given you to give yourself for. Okay, so let's have a look at some of the dangers of pride. It makes you a fool. You can't learn from your mistakes if you have pride. You're always trying to justify, always trying to shift the blame. It was him, it was her, it was the circumstances. So you, if you have the superiority form of pride, you dismiss it. No, no, they, they don't understand if you have the inferiority version of pride, you crumble under criticism. Neither are able to learn from it. You're constantly overestimating your, your strengths if you, are, if you have the superiority, superiority, superiority version. And you're constantly underestimating if you have the inferiority complex. You're constantly thinking... You're looking up to those above you and looking down on those below you, thinking that being intimidated by those you perceive to be above you and feeling more powerful than those you perceive to be below you. Whereas a humble person can laugh at their mistakes and learn really fast from them. Pride makes you evil. We see that very easily in the story of Haman, in the extreme. But bitterness, we can't stay angry unless you feel better than that person. I'd never have treated them like this. The whole victim culture is pride wrapped up in a more kind of sugar-coated. You can't stay bitter with someone unless you feel that you are better than them. Fear is also an element of, uh, an, ex- an expression of pride. Because I know exactly how things should go, and I've got to make them go that way. Um, I'm scared if they don't. It's an arrogance to think, no, no, I, I, I know the way things should be. Being opinionated can be the superior, superior version. Being indecisive can be the inferior version version. Being abrasive can be the superior version. 
being shy can be the inferior version. And all of the social evils that we come across, racism, national pride, gangs, knife crime, we're seeing a lot more in this area, all motivated by pride. It makes us evil. Another danger is it's the carbon monoxide of sins. You don't even know it's there, it's odourless. The danger of it is the less proud you feel, the more proud you're becoming. You don't, you don't see it happening. You know when you're stealing. You know when you're sneaking money into your account from your employer. You know when you're committing adultery. You don't just say, oh, you're not my wife. No, you know it's, it's going on. But pride, we don't see it. We don't smell it. We don't, it doesn't indicate it. Joseph Epstein said, you can only re- really hate snobs if you feel superior to snobs. Do you look down on people who look that down on people? And this was the point that caught me when I was listening to a teaching on pride. Uh, the teacher said, you've been listening to me Listen to me talking about pride now for 25 minutes. How many of you have been thinking about other people that need to have heard this? (laughs) I had names in my head of people. Oh, how can I get them to listen to this? It's the carbon monoxide of sins. And religion just makes it worse. Can't kill it off. Sometimes that trying to be more moral means that we can curb our stealing or our gossiping or things like that, but it only fuels the fire when we try to engage in religion. If you remember, the Pharisees were full of pride because they thought they were doing pretty well in their moral performance. But how does a, pride, a proud person react to the fact that God is great, you must obey him? Well, either you are really pleased that you're doing well with it, or you're absolutely crushed. How could I ever live up to the standard that he's set? And that will still lead you to being absolutely self-obsessed. So the dangers of pride... Makes you a fool, makes you evil. It's the carbon monoxide of sin, and religion just makes it worse. So, what about the cure? Well, let's come back to the story. What should be done for the man that the king delights to honour? The king's robe is equal to kind of partaking of the king's position. We think of Joseph, we think of the David and Jonathan situation. It's more than honour, it expresses a delight. Up on the horse has the picture, the communication of the conquering king. 
and the noble to lead the horse. In comparison, the highest noble is merely a servant of this person that's on the horse. If people saw that I'm loved like that by someone as great as that, then they'll know and, and I'll, I'll know my true value. See, we don't just want love, but we want someone we think the world of thinking the world of us. We want to be loved like that by someone like that. The great phrase by Jao Tolkien. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. Hold that one. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. Incredible reversal of roles. Haman now knows he's doomed because he's tried to exhort himself. Then we come back to the scripture. And this is something which I think is so key. It's Matthew ten thirty nine. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, this is not necessarily talking about our physical life. He's talking about making a place for ourselves. If we try to do it for ourselves, it just backfires. It just doesn't work. But if we lay down our life for him, for his purpose, unto him, we will certainly find what he has and what has he, he has intended for us. Losing yourself to find it. An amazing thing. It sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? Sounds strange. It's one minute. But it comes out of the recognition that I no longer live and Christ lives in me that I've committed myself to him and you know if we've done that if we say that we're trusting him for the whole of our eternity and then we begin to kind of say you know I think I'll just sort this one out it's kind of like saying yeah you did a good job on Calvary but I think I can handle this one myself I think I can deal with this situation. I think I can sort this person out. I think I can do it. And of course I'll do it my way. It's the wrong way of going. But it does work in everyday matters of life. In fact, I suppose it's true to say that we'd never make a good impression on people until we stop trying to make a good impression upon people because we're getting sidetracked into the wrong thing lose your life and you'll save it look for yourself and you find in the long run only loneliness and despair and rage and ruin and decay but look for Christ what he wants and you find him and everything else thrown in Let's just think about, well, there's numerous scriptures that warn us about this. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 13, verse 10, pride only breeds quarrels. You see, Haman 
didn't so much ask for the wrong thing, but he asked it of the wrong king. He was looking for it from the wrong place, from the wrong source. In a sense, he wanted what we all want. We need to have someone better than us affirm us. There's a better king who has ultimate glory but stripped himself of it. The Father's love of respect of the glory we were singing about and talking about earlier. Why? Because he traded places with us. He took our place. Haman forced to switch places. But Jesus voluntarily switched places with us. Jesus was stripped naked so we could be clothed in his righteousness. He takes what we deserve so that we can get what he deserves. John 17, verse 22. He says, he's given to us the glory that was given to him before the very foundation of the of the earth, that they may be one as I and the Father are one. See, the praise of the ultimate praiseworthy is yours. That's what he's provided for us. That recognition, that love, that acceptance, that passing on of what he is to us. His robe is ours. That's the cure for pride. It's the recognition of who we are and what we've got in him. He loves us like that. The fact that he had to die is very humbling. As we were singing this morning, that was just hitting me all over again, that he did that and suffered that for me that I might know, that I might have this place of acceptance, this place of security. Indeed, that I may gain the praise of the ultimate praiseworthy. The fact that he gladly did that, I can't comprehend that. He did it for me. He gladly suffered that. It wasn't forced upon him. Nobody took his life. He laid it down for you and for me. He loves us just like that. The fact that he had to die for us is very humbling. The fact that he gladly did it affirms us completely. You see, Jesus was strong enough to be weak for us. We can be strong enough to learn our mistakes. Relationships can be about more than just you. Do you know, the cure for pride is very simple. He delights to honour us. He delights to honour us. It's coming into that realisation and revelation of just who he is, what he's done, and where we stand with him. The praise of the ultimate praiseworthy is towards us from him let's pray you know 
my brothers and sisters, you can spend a lot of time uh, kind of in self-examination. But it is the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it half as good as he can. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. The purpose of the word of God is to equip us, to add to us and to take from us, to add to us what we need and to take away from us what we don't need. The application of the word of God is by the Holy Spirit. And what I'm going to pray is a very, very good place for you to join in. I'm going to ask God that he would search our hearts. That we would not only be aware when we're operating in pride, because as we were hearing, it's the carbon monoxide of sin. It's the thing you can't see, you can't smell, but dear oh me, it happens to be around. And it's not what God wants. God has equipped us to walk in humility and trust before him. So I'm going to pray. Your option is to be joined in this prayer. Your option is to say, Lord, do this for me. Lord, we bow before you. We have been looking into your word. We see this thing about the mistake of external beauty. We also see the awful, obnoxious nature of pride. We also see the danger of seeing it in others and not in ourselves. So therefore, Lord, we ask you by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would do two things. That you would reveal where we need to repent of pride, where we need, Lord, to turn from it by the power of your might. And, Lord, that you would bring us into a new place of understanding that we have the love, the pride, removal the best pride removal system that could ever exist. Your love, the praise of the praiseworthy. The ultimate, the ultimate praiseworthy, Jesus himself. Thank you, Lord, that your word declares that you clothed us with this same cloak of righteousness. Now, Lord, we again say, and we give you that invitation by the power of your Holy Spirit to reveal where there's pride because we want to become more like you. And Lord, at the same time as you reveal and show us so that we can repent and turn from it, we ask, Lord, that you bring us into a new and increased revelation of our acceptance and of the praise that we receive from you personally to us, that we might be move from one degree of glory to another, that we might become more like you for the glory of your name. Amen.